0: All right, so um, we're beginning an ambitious new series. Um, We're going to cover the entire Bible in 10 weeks, uh, every single book. Um, It's not going to be a sort of historical survey or a chronological survey, but rather it's going to be a survey of every single book, uh, which means that more uh, certain times get more press than others. And the, the thesis behind this whole class, is what Jesus said to his disciples at the end of Luke on the road to Emmaus, right? He told his disciples, "All scriptures testify to me, right?" And so we're going to look at um, the Bible from that prism. Um, there's handouts if you guys could get some. Also, can I have as many of you guys sit in that side that way? it's Less disruptive. I'm sorry so um let, so the 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 what I'm going to cover is the first five books of the Bible um, the, this is called the first five books of Moses it's also called the Pentateuch uh, which comes from Latin five Pentateuch I believe it's volumes so five volumes um, and in the Jewish tradition it's called Torah which means the law uh, the Torah can refer to the entire Bible but it's specifically refers to these five books and these five books are foundational to understanding the rest of scripture right everything comes back to this and um you know uh we can think of the bible the story of the bible is not a cyclical we we repeat again and again but it's linear and it's directional and so it's creation then there's the fall in eden with adam and then God um, resolves to redeem us, to save us, to, to, to uh, heal this broken world. And then there's new creation, right? Um, Eden, not just restored, but greater and fuller. And in a formal historical sense, the first five books covers this period, right? So this is pretty foundational, with hints of new creation, of course, all throughout. You have all four um, epochs of redemptive history echoed again and again throughout scripture. But what we're looking at in the first five books is um, it records creation all the way to uh, the end of the wilderness wanderings right before they enter into Canaan, the promised land. Right, because the the very next book is Joshua when the conquest began. So we're covering that history. Uh, this timeline is non-representative because if it's a true representation, it would be stretching back who knows how long, right? But um, the, 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 so Genesis covers from creation to um, the, the people of God in bondage in Egypt. And then the, re- the rest of the four books is squeezed into this short time period. You don't see Leviticus here. And I'll, t- I'll tell you why later. Um, and so the first five books is mostly history with large sections of law. And, you know, a lot of times people resolve, I'm going to read the whole Bible uh, this year, and they usually die around Leviticus. <laughs> and the reason why is because there's a lot of law, right? So the law portions really bog people down. Um, but we'll get to that. But it's mostly history. I was a history major, so I love history. History, the way I always think of it is it's just true stories, right? So it's really fun. But, so that's introdu- in, introduction to the Pentateuch. So let's go, introduction to Genesis. Let's see how fast I can do it. All right, so Genesis. Is the story you, you can follow along in your handout. Um, is the story of beginnings. There's a handout right there. And Genesis is very distinct from the rest of the Pentateuch, again because it covers this uh, period before um, Egypt. And you have to remember also that Genesis was written here, around here, right. So Genesis is looking back, whereas Exodus through Deuteronomy has a real like um, real time feel to it. And Genesis can be divided into two parts. Um, Chapters 1 through 11 is primeval history. And so we can sort of break down this thing. So there's creation. There's the flood with Noah. There's um, the Tower of Babel. And then there's the call of Abraham, right? Um, So we would put this, designate this as primeval history. Primeval just simply means... Long, long time ago, right? You you can't even date it in any way. Um, So, chapters one through eleven has a very different feel. It's it's very ancient, very old. And then from chapters twelve through fifty, the vast bulk of Genesis is covering from the call of Abraham to when they're um, in Egypt. So, this is chapters twelve through fifty, right? So that's a big portion of Genesis, and. And so one of the things we're going to do is we're going to read a significant portion from each book of the Bible to give you a sense of what each book is about. And the the, the passage I chose is Genesis 15, because Genesis 15 um, articulates something very crucial, which is the Abrahamic covenant. So before we get to that, I need to explain what a covenant is. Um, What is a covenant? This is the organizing principle of the Bible. A covenant, very simply put, is a binding personal relationship in which there are blessings if you keep it, and there are are negative consequences if you break it. So the the simplest uh, analogy is marriage. Marriage is a covenant relationship, right, in which you bind yourself to another person, and if you break the covenant, right, if you're unfaithful, you experience the curses of the covenant, which is divorce. If you keep the covenant... Right, you love your spouse, you're faithful to your spouse, you enjoy the blessings, which is a happy married life. And so covenant is the organizing principle, and in the Bible there are two basic covenants. Okay, So there's the covenant of grace, I'm sorry, let's start with of works, and then of grace. Okay. See, that's easy, right? And the covenant of works goes like this. In the Garden of Eden, God tells Adam and Eve, if you obey, you will live. If you disobey, you die. Right? Simple. And so that is the foundational covenant that never ends. It goes all throughout. So if we could sort of match it to the timeline. This is the covenant of works. Right? Other people call it the covenant at creation, the Edenic covenant, the Adamic covenant. So the covenant of works. But what happens, of course, in the covenant of works? We break it, and therefore we deserve the curses of the covenant. But God graciously, even though He has no obligation, He institutes a second covenant on top of the first covenant. And we would call this the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace begins at the garden, right? Because God promises, right? A, a, a seed right from Eve will defeat the serpent. Um, but in a full articulated sense, it begins with Abraham. So we also call this the Abrahamic covenant, right? But it's the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace simply means that God will fulfill the covenant of works for us, He will send a substitute. He will suffer the consequences of our failures. He'll die on the cross. And he will also fulfill the covenant for us. He will live a perfect life of obedience for our sake. If if you guys are in the back, I think there's some. And that's okay. All right, so God um, institutes the covenant of grace with Abraham. And this is basically um, how you can think of it the whole world has fallen. And God says, I'm going to redeem the world. I'm going to heal the world. And he says, I'm going to begin with a single person, Abraham. And then from Abraham, it's going to go to his family. And then from his family to a whole nation, Israel. And then from Israel, through the church, it's going to spread out throughout the world. And then eventually, at new creation, the whole world will be mine. I will remake the whole world. So that's what's happening in the Abrahamic covenant. God is beginning to redeem the world, right, with a single person, a single family, a single nation, and then that nation is going to be mobilized internationally, and it's going to spread out throughout the world, right? So let's read uh, Genesis 15. Jeff, can I have you read, how about the first two paragraphs, and then I'll have John read the second two paragraphs. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Wait, so let me just break right there. You're probably saying, Hey, you just said it was Abraham. Why well, did I say Abram? Um... That's Ab- Abraham's original name. It just means great father. And every time God comes into your life, he changes your name, right? And so he becomes Abraham, which means father of many nations, right? And so the problem that he's talking about here is children. Because um, this is not the first time that God comes to him. God comes to him in Genesis chapter 12. He comes again in Genesis 17. So the Abrahamic covenant is repeated over and over again. Um, I think you guys can just sit on that, that area. Okay. Sorry. Um, and 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 so the promises of children, right? And so it hasn't come through. And God's saying, what children? I'm an old man, but there's no children for me. So, uh, John, can I have you read Genesis, uh, 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 sorry, verse 4? Um, and before the
1: word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought Abram outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you are able to
0: number them, then he said to him, So shall be your offspring be. Keep going. Oh, and mm-hmm. Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Okay, so um Abrahamic covenant again is foundational. For us, we are saved under the Abrahamic covenant. Right? We are if you read um, uh, uh, Romans chapter 4, we are called children of Abraham. right? And so this is very important to understand how God saves us, God's redemptive plan. It, it begins with a person, a family, and then a whole nation. And the, the contents of the Abrahamic covenant is, are as such. If you look at verse 1, it's the promise of blessing. right? Um, this is, by the way, a unilateral, unconditional covenant. Uh, so let me just go back to this. The covenant of works is conditional, right? Obey. If you obey, then you will live. The covenant of grace is promissory, or it's a promise. Why is that so important? Because a promise has nothing to do with you. Right? If I say to Jomelian, I promise that I will be you know at your house tomorrow at 9 a.m., it has nothing to do with it. you. You could wake up late, <laughs> you could sleep in, um, um, you could not even be there, and I will guarantee that I, I will keep my part, right? And so, uh, uh, God promises blessing to Abraham. And I love this. He says, fear not, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. What is Abraham's ultimate reward? It's not anything material. It is God himself. Right? And then, um, if you look at the next bullet point, I go back to twelve, chapter 12, verse th- verse 3. In you, all the families of earth shall be blessed. What that simply means is that, again, through Abraham, the whole world is going to be blessed. Right? That God Will do the same thing. The Abrahamic covenant will go to the world. Verse 5 it's the promise of an offspring. Very important. Basically, that it's not just going to be Abraham who enjoys these blessings, but it's going to go.
1: Sorry, real quick. If other parents come, can you let them know we're in the playground, like down that way? So nobody's in the
0: nursery. Okay. Um, so God promises a people, a community, right? And in verse 7, it's the promise of a land. This is very important, okay? So a lot of people get weirded out by this. I don't understand. What does this have to do with us? Why a land? Because remember, what is the goal? The goal is new creation. What is new creation? The whole world is going to be remade. It's going to be renewed and glorified. And God is basically establishing a beachhead. He's saying this little plot, the promised land, Canaan, is where it begins. This is a taste of heaven. And then it's going to spread throughout the whole world. And one day the whole world will be like Israel, right? <laughs> and then uh, verse 6, if you go back one verse, this, this is why it chose this passage. It shows us the basis of the covenant. It's not, the, it's not on the basis of our performance or obedience or law-keeping, but what? It is on the basis of faith. We're justified by faith alone. Paul refers to this in Galatians chapter 3. Uh, uh, and in Romans chapter 4, this is crucial, right? We're justified by faith, not by works by a substitute. Okay, so that's Genesis. Any questions? All right. So let's let's continue on Exodus. Okay, so we're on to Exodus. Um, the story. This is the story of Israel. We at the end of ex- at the end of Genesis, we're still with a family. It's about fifty people, but it's still a you know a, a large extended family. And by the time we get to Exodus, it's now a nation. It's it's an enormous people, and it's the story of them being rescued from oppression to this to the greatest superpower of that day, which is Egypt. And the story is incredibly relevant because it echoes what's happening in the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, you have the exact same situation. The people of God are under oppression to the greatest superpower of that day, which is Rome. Right. So the entire New Testament is really just New Exodus. And then there's two parts to, 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 ex, to the book of Exodus, which is chapters uh, 1 through 18. Um, they're going out of Egypt. And then from 19 through 40, it's the covenant at Sinai. And so now we're going to talk about the Mosaic Covenant. And this is, this is going to be really fun. All right, so I said there are two basic covenants, okay? Now I'm going to seem like I'm going to contradict myself a little bit. Because at Sinai, so this is, Sinai is a mountain, right? In the Sinai Peninsula, right, out of, right outside of Egypt. God institutes another covenant. And we call it um, the Mosaic Covenant. We call it the Sinai Covenant. Not a key right covenant, all right? Alright. Okay. Now, the Mosaic Covenant, what's going on in the Mosaic Covenant, right? Um, there are two so if you guys can skip the passage it we'll go back to it. There are two aspects of the Mosaic Covenant, and this is what really confuses people. Because it's all intermixed. There's an unconditional grace aspect. So it seems like it's the covenant of grace. And there are conditional blessings. If you do this, then you do this. But if you break this, then you will suffer curse, punishment. That sounds like the covenant of works. So which is it? And the answer is that the the Mosaic covenant is fundamentally a covenant of grace. Because if you read, for example, in Galatians... Right? Paul specifically talks about this. He says, uh, the law, which came 400 years after Abraham, does not contradict the covenant of grace. So it's not like God said to Abraham, believe and you'll be saved. Right, Your righteousness is based on your faith in a substitute. And then God goes to the people of Israel, never mind, obey and you'll be saved. But So what do we do with this whole obedience part? And So we'll get to it. Let's read the passage. We see both elements. Can I have Christine read? And then I will interrupt you. As we read, yeah. Moses. Well, actually, you just read through the whole thing. Go ahead.
1: Okay. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the
0: rules. Okay, so let me set up the context. So they're at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up. He receives the law. And then he marches back down. And then now he's talking to the people, right? Because the the Ten Commandments, remember, is Exodus chapter 20. So this is just right after Moses receives the law. Go ahead. <coughs>
1: answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken,
0: we will do. Let me just underscore that. The people say everything that God has instructed us to do in the Mosaic Covenant, we promise we'll do it. Keep going.
1: And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young people, young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient.
0: Let me underscore that again. Everything God has asked us to do, we will obey. Keep going.
1: And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance
0: with all these words. Can you guys picture this scene? The people keep repeating, we will obey, we promise, we will keep the law. And Moses says, okay. And then he splashes sacrificial blood on the people. Right? So what is that imagery telling us? It's telling us that the foundation of this covenant is fundamentally grace. Because the people cannot obey. Already a provision is made from the moment the law is given, you cannot obey. Blood has to be splattered over you, right? And this is ultimately a picture of what? The blood of Christ. So the foundation of the covenant is um, um, uh, salvation in Christ, but then notice that uh, secondarily it's a covenant of works, right? Because Moses says, and and here it says in Leviticus 18.5, which is quoted by Paul as the principle of works in the Old Testament, obey and you will live, Right? And so what do we do with this conditional law aspect of the Mosaic Covenant? And the answer is that it's a, there's a secondary purpose. So the primary purpose of the Mosaic Covenant is to tell us about Jesus. Right? That's why the Passover lamb, the sacrifices, it's all about grace. It's all about Jesus. It doesn't change. But the secondary purpose is to demonstrate that the law kills, that you cannot obey the law. And I wrote here, it's Eden Redox. And so this is the way you should understand it, okay? So what's the story of Eden, right? Eden is Adam is in a garden. Right, this is the garden. And when Adam disobeyed, what happened? He got um, kicked open out. Open. Huh? He got kicked out. He got kicked out. What direction did he get kicked out? Anyone remember? That's important. Which direction did he get kicked out? East! Very important. Do you guys have you ever read Steinbeck's novel, East of Eden? Right? Oh, high school. Do you guys, <laughs> come on.
2: Alright,
0: so Adam and Eve are kicked out east. Okay? Very important. Now, the, gar- the, the, the the promised land is described as what? A land flowing with milk and honey. It's this lush, beautiful landscape, right? And Israel is a new Adam. It's a corporate people, Adam. And then they're told the same thing Adam is told. Obey, and you will live. You can stay in the land. Disobey, and what is the consequences of disobedience for Israel? Exile. Which direction do they go in exile? It must be east. They go east, to Babylon. So Israel, in, pa- in, in, in Canaan, in the promised land, is reenacting the story of Adam in the garden. Because they they disobey just like Adam, and they're expelled out of land. They're cursed. What's the whole point? The whole point is that that God drills this home again and again and again. You cannot be saved by obedience. You cannot be saved by the law. You need a savior. You need a substitute, Jesus Christ. That's the whole point. And so the Mosaic Covenant is basically one giant um, dramatization of this lesson. That our forefather failed to cut the covenant of works. That's an enormous concept. Anybody have any questions before we move on? Alright, so I wrote that down, right? The drama of salvation. We're put in the land, we disobey, we go into exile, and then we return, gracious return, because of Jesus. Right? So that's Exodus, Leviticus. Now, Leviticus, unlike the other four books, it's not. Um, it doesn't have historical narratives, right? So it's basically just a book of ritual holiness. And as I said before, everyone who resolves to read the Bible in one year, they die in Leviticus. I completely understand, because Leviticus will kill you. <laughs> um, because it's so drawn out. It's so elaborate, um, the, 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 the holiness laws, right? And it's, it's mostly about the duties and responsibilities of the priests in the temple, this is why it's called Leviticus. Does anyone know what the root word there in Leviticus? Why it's Levites? Levi. Yes. What's what? Who are the Levites? <clears throat> you answer so <laughs> confidently. Now I need to go deeper. They're the uh, teachers of the law. I know, but who who are who are the Levites descended from? Oh, um, that I don't know. Levi, no, like right? I, I, oh. <laughs> is,
2: is the thing about the the tribe of the tribe of, uh, the tribe of was given to God as a?
0: Exactly. They're a priestly tribe, right? So. Um, It mostly has to do with the tribe of Levi, right? The priestly work. Um, And so there's meticulous details about uh, offerings, feasts, vows. There there are um, four major feasts in Israel. So it goes through that. And so let me just read to you a brief passage from Leviticus 13, and it's about the laws of leprosy. I've given you a very brief portion of it. It's three chapters. I think each chapter is like 60 verses, right? It is meticulous, it is very precise about um, how to deal with leprosy. But let me have Julia, the pleasure of reading. So it'll flip over. Yes. Okay.
2: Uh, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron and the priest, or to one of his sons, the priest's, and the priest shall examine the diseased area <clears throat> on the skin of his body. And if the hair in the diseased area has turned white, and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unseen. So I,
0: so I skip a whole bunch, because <clears throat> he, he goes through all these like, conditions. What about this? What about that? Go on to verse 45.
2: The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall re- remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp.
0: Okay, so what is the point of Leviticus? You could think of Leviticus as a series of dramatic skits. And God gives them to his people. And the whole point is the difference between clean and unclean, holy and unholy. And he's dramatizing to the people um, what is sin, what is disobedience. And leprosy is one vivid example of that. Because the lepers, lepers looked disfigured, they, they looked disgusting, and they were to, in fact, accentuate it because they were to go around looking haggard and like a beggar. And they were to always cry out, unclean, unclean. And they were to always stay away from people. And that is a dramatization of what sin does to you, right? Sin alienates you from God. Sin alienates you from community. And so that's the point of Leviticus. And I think if you read it in that framework, it becomes so much more compelling and interesting. And ultimately, Jesus what declares all the clean laws void or fulfilled is a better way to think of it. Because Jesus is the one person who is perfectly clean for us. Okay. So that's Leviticus Let's go on to Numbers Now um, if you ask a survey of people Which of the four books do you think is the most boring Just if you look at the titles They'll say Numbers has to be the most boring Because you know they think there's a lot of numbers there And this is true because the first um, uh, It says if you look at the third bullet point the, uh, Numbers is in two parts From chapters 1 through uh, Chapter 10 verse t- uh, 10 Is all about the preparations And a lot of the preparations is census so they're just counting, right? There's so many people, in this tribe, and this, you know, this, this um, tribal leader has this many descendants. Um, but once you get, if you can survive the census taking and all the preparations, from chapter 10, verse 11, all the way to chapter 36, it is a fun, exciting story of the wilderness wanderings. And some of you will remember, we actually did a sermon series in numbers, right? So basically, it's the story of the wanderings and in, in, um in the wilderness. And so this is basically the story. Let me just draw to you a map. Okay, so this is Egypt. This is the Sinai Peninsula. Let's say this is Mount Sinai. We don't actually know exactly where it is. And, it says, and this is and this a Canaan. Okay? So what the, the story of Numbers is after um, Mount Sinai. So Exodus covers uh, the people of God leaving Exodus and they get to Mount Sinai, and then from Mount Sinai, they spend, I think it's like two months. No, no, they spend a year. They spend an entire year making preparations. And um, it's actually only a three-day journey from Sinai to Canaan, but what ends up happening is they spend 40 years wandering, right? Because what happens is that the first generation finally reaches Canaan fairly early in in their journey. They send out spies, and they say, The land is full of giants. There's no way we can take it. And God says, okay, every single one of you, except Joshua and Caleb, you're going to perish in the wilderness. And I'm going to wait till the second generation. And so they end up wandering in Sinai. And then they reach Moab, right on the cusp of the promised land, which is right here, and we'll get, and that's Deuteronomy. But let me just um, cover uh, 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 the, wa- the the wilderness wanderings. It's an exciting story because we're told by the New Testament in First Corinthians ten, Hebrews three and four, that the wilderness wanderings is a picture of the Christian life. Because what is Egypt? Egypt is bondage to, not slavery. Sin. It's our life in sin. And what is the Promised Land? It's heaven. It's a new creation. And so we're in between bondage and slavery, and salvation and, and new creation. And in between, things are looking wrong. right? We're wandering, um, there's no food, there's no water, um, and we have to constantly, what, live not by sight, but by faith. That's the Christian life. And why does God do this? Why does God um, withdraw provisions? Why does God um, um, cause them constantly to hunger and thirst? Deuteronomy 8.3 tells us, if you guys scroll down to the bottom, it says, God let you hunger, because man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of of the Lord. So that's the whole lesson of of, of Numbers, which is your ultimate sustenance isn't your circumstances in life. (laughs) It isn't bread. It isn't water. It's what? It's God. Because when God is all you have, he's all you need. That's when you finally realize it. that. All right, so let's read Numbers 21, and I will interrupt this time, so maybe can I have Jesse read the first paragraph? From Mount Borah they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Okay, so what's going on? The people are grumbling against God. They're complaining. And what this shows us is that this is an act of unbelief, and it's a complaint against God's management. And I'm actually going to talk about this in the sermon, so I don't want to uh, 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 preempt it too much. But the whole point is to show us that uh, food and water is not as essential. As essential as there's something more essential, which is God. And That's why God removes it to help the people to see it. And then um, let's go to verse six. So there's consequences. Can I have uh, David from verse uh, six?
2: And then the Lord said, fiery serpents. Oh, let me just interrupt
0: there. So fire <laughs> serpents. Does that mean like it was like snakes of fire? Um, it probably means that when the snake bit you, you experienced fire, like this incredible intense burning and thirst, and then you die. Okay, keep going. <laughs>
2: and they bit the people so that many people die. Okay,
0: stop right there. So let me just comment on that. Okay, so what happens? Um, the people grumble and complain. And by the way, this happens again and again and again. If you read numbers, you just feel like deja vu, right? Because it's over and over and over again. But each time it's something new. It's a little bit different. Um, and so the people basically experience the consequences of their rebellion. And I want you to see that the fiery serpents is a fitting punishment because the poison in the snakes is supposed to be a picture of the poison in their hearts. And so God is actually being incredibly gracious because he's showing the people externally what is already in their hearts. And and the fact that they burn, the fact that they die of thirst is to show them the consequences of rebellion against God. Right? That if you reject God, if you disbelieve God, you're going to experience cosmic thirst. And then what happens? Let's read from verse 7. Um are we at David? Yeah. Okay, David.
2: And the people
0: came to Moses and said, We have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And keep okay, well I wanna have Julie oh. read it. Now. It's okay.
1: Okay.
0: okay let me split it to Julie, yeah.
1: yeah
0: <laughs> Share the wealth. Okay.
1: And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who has been when he sees it shall live. <laughs> So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he will look at the bronze serpent and live.
0: All right. So let's take a look at this, right? So here's a here's a here's a serpent. I mean, here's a pole. And then on the pole, right, is this serpent? I I can't draw a so serpent. That's the serpent's head. Okay. <laughs> All right. So this this is how the people are saved. Look at the bronze serpent, and you'll live. This is incredibly, deep, deeply symbolic. Because what does the serpent remind you of?
1: Adam and Eve.
0: Yes. What no, was an apple. Yes. So there was a, uh, 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 the, the tempter, right? A serpent in the garden. And so what is the serpent a picture of? It's a picture of their sin, of their rebellion. And God puts it on a pole. Now, this is a little bit... Um, we're not used to this because we're not in an ancient culture... But at the end of a battle you would always put up on a pole. What would you put up on a pole? At the end of let's say you won the battle and you have a pole with you, right? So you're elevating it really high up. What are you going to put on the pole? Huh?
2: King's head? Yes. Okay,
0: good. So what do you put on the pole? You put the dead carcass of your enemy, right? To display to everybody. We've done it. We've we've conquered them. Who should be, whose head should be on the pole? The people should be on the pole. But what does God put on the pole instead? He puts a serpent, right? He puts a symbol, a picture of their sin. And so how could that be? And here's the gospel connection, John 3, 14. Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. This is a picture of Jesus Christ, right? Being lifted up. And he's conquered. He's destroyed. He's killed. And our sin is put on him. Right? Second Corinthians five twenty one. Um, God made him who who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So again, right? This is all in the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant is all about grace. It's all about the gospel, it's all about Jesus. again and again, right? We're given this dynamic. Here's the law, you break the law, here's a provision of grace. It's again and again and again. And then there's the meta, meta illustration which is land, exile, right Land of disobedience, exile and then gracious return. So it's all gospel all the way through. Um, any questions about numbers? I put a little I put another bullet point. Mm-hmm. Um, remember that Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted. And remember what does Satan ask Jesus to do? With the first temptation? Turn these rocks into bread. What is Satan asking Jesus basically to do? To be dissatisfied with the sufferings and deprivation of the wilderness. And what does Jesus say in return? He quotes Deuteronomy 8:3. He says, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the true Israelite who went through the wilderness and he alone obeyed and he was faithful. And he didn't grumble. He didn't complain. Right? All right, so, final... Wow, I'm way ahead of schedule. All right, let me open it up. (laughs) If you have questions, I was so panicked that I wasn't going to have time. But, um, are there any questions? All right, let's go on to Deuteronomy. All right, so Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is really fun. Because essentially, Deuteronomy is a sermon. Uh, It's a very long sermon. And what happens is that um, um, 40 years they're wandering in the wilderness. And then they reach Moab, which is on the cusp of entering the promised land. And Moses preaches uh, an extended sermon. He actually he actually gives them three different speeches, three <laughs> sermons. And he's preaching to the people. And a lot of people say, uh, think of Deuteronomy as sort of like the theological text to understand the whole Exodus story. Because Moses is giving them, you know, he's explaining what's going on, and he's reminding them, and he's repeating the Mosaic Covenant. And so let's read Deuteronomy 6 to underscore it. So Chewy, Justin, um, I'm going to interrupt you. Please read.
2: (laughs) And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat... Let, it me, is, let me
0: stop you there. All right. So what is what is Moses reminding the people? He's saying, when you enter the promised land, everything's going to be pre-built. The cities are already going to be there. The wells will already be there. Vineyards will be already there. You did not put any effort. What is this emphasizing? Right? Because because Canaan is what? A picture of salvation. Heaven. Heaven, right. So what is this telling the people of God?
1: Covenant of grace, not work.
0: Yes, which is, it's not by your effort. You didn't build it, but God is going to graciously give it to you, right? So let's read on. Um, And when you eat and you are full, Justin?
2: Then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery.
0: Okay, so let me stop there. He says, take care lest you forget the Lord. So this is actually a converse lesson to the wilderness.
2: What is the lesson
0: of the wilderness? Which The lesson of the wilderness, God is sufficient. You don't need bread, you don't need water, ultimately you need the Lord. So let me remove bread, let me remove water so that you rely and trust on him, God, daily. Remember God gives manna from heaven, right? So this is miraculous provision from God, which means every day you're depending on God. Now, when they reach the promised land, it's like the exact opposite of the wilderness. Right, it's a lush land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Um, uh, that term, milk and honey. Milk is like, in order to drink milk, you need a what? Come on, you city lovers. What what, what do you need for milk? A cow. You need a cow, <laughs> right? Now, cow is a very <laughs> difficult animal to keep alive, right? You need lots of grass. You, you you know you need to have settlements. And then honey. You know we think oh honey, but you have to know that in the ancient world, honey was the sweetest uh, substance natural substance in the world. And so to eat honey which is incredibly sweet. So milk, honey, it's like it's like the greatest banquet feast is, is the picture, right? All of that will be provided. And now God is saying, now that you're not in the wilderness, now that you're in a land of plenty, now that you're going to be rich and all all your everything provided for you, don't forget me. It's the it's the reverse lesson, right? So then Tommy can I have you read verse thirteen. It is the Lord your God, you shall fear him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Thus the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroyed you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord... Oh, I'm sorry, sir. Let me stop Let me, stop. Oh. Let me stop you right there. So what is verses 13 through 15 saying? Um, Moses is, re- <coughs> is, is reminding the people... That they are to, um, they are to be faithful and loyal to God, and not go after foreign gods, not go after um, 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 other gods, and it is a reminder of the Abrahamic covenant, right? Because in the Abrahamic covenant, um, Abraham was to be a blessing to the world, right? And so that's what Israel was 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 supposed to be. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. And therefore, they were supposed to be this distinct countercultural people, a city on a hill, so to speak. But instead, what happens? They succumb to temptation. And the whole history of Israel is that they're constantly compromising with the Canaanite nations. And in fact, and I'm stealing a little bit of Harry's lesson, in the story of the conquest, right, God says, wipe out all the people from Canaan. And the, the people of Israel don't do it. Right? They, they, they do it in parts, and fits and starts, but they leave huge pockets of Canaanites in the land with them. And so they compromise the commission. And then those people become a snare. Those people um, 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 tempt Israel. And so what happens is that um, um, Israel fails as their duty to be a blessing to the nations. Because I have the time, let me just say something about the conquest. okay? Because a lot of people don't like the conquest, right? If you read Joshua, and Judges, people are like, I don't like all this bloodshed and killing, right? Because for example, the first city they have to conquer, city of Ai, what does God say? Destroy everything. Don't even leave the animals. Everything. Wipe it all out. And so people say, what's going on? And the answer is that Canaan is what? Is is a picture of heaven. And so heaven is where. God in His holiness is present, and therefore there can be no sin. There can be no rebellion. There can be no uh, 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 there can be no um, rejection of God, and therefore it has to be wiped clean, and it's going to be a holy land. But notice that God never says, "You know, wipe out you know uh, the Phoenicians." The Sidonians wipe out the Moabites. Wipe out the Edomites. They're left alone. Only within the land is the conquest mandate given. I'll let Harry talk about that, because that's a huge issue. A lot of people have huge problems with that. Any questions on that, by the <laughs> way? Yes, Jesse? So, um, I feel like this kind of... So, so wait, me, let me just say something really quick. because so, <laughs> Whatever you just said reminded me of something. Um, <laughs> so, th- a lot of people say that this is a, um, this is a preview of final judgment, right? Because what happens is, what happens in Canaan is eventually going to happen to the whole world. Because one day the king will come back. He is a righteous king. He's a good king. And all evildoers will perish. And the whole world will be made anew. And God says, thousands and thousands of years before the actual event happened, he says, this small strip of land, remember I said the whole world, it begins with a small little plot of land, a beachhead. This land, it begins now. Anyways, go ahead.
2: Yeah, so I guess
0: echoing to the future as well as the past, yeah. it's like it's echoing to the flood as well as the fall of judgment. Yes, yes. So I feel like or uh, the difference between the two is that God, God does the killing, I guess. In the, in the flood and in the, uh, yeah. In the, so uh, why is it that the people kill? That's a good question. Um, I think because it's also a test to Israel. Can you be faithful? Because a lot of times, I mean, why does God say, for example, kill all the animals? What, what? Why kill all the bunnies, right, and, 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 and the chickens, right? The reason why is because, and in fact, they're told not to keep any plunder, right? No gold, no money. Don't keep any of it. The reason why is because it's not a conquest in the traditional sense in which you kill the people, you get to keep their booty, right? You cannot, no touching the booty because this is the Lord's judgment. Everything is verbatim. Everything is wiped out. And, and therefore, it's a test to Israel. And notice that Israel fails. Right? So, for example, in the, in the conquest of Ai, Achan, he's like, oh my gosh, I got all this booty. And then he hides it under his, his, his tent, and he keeps it, and so judgment falls on the people of God. So it's an object lesson. But why does God um, uh, give it to his people? Because th- this is true all throughout redemptive history. right? Even now, right, the battle, the war is not flesh and blood, but it's against every spiritual force, right? Against, you know, the, the dark lords. And so even now we're, we're participating <clears throat> in the battle. I don't know if that answers the question. Yes.
1: Is there any significance that Moses doesn't get to go to Canaan?
0: Yes, it is deeply significant. Moses is, in his person, another object lesson for us. Because Moses is not the savior, even Moses has fallen, right? And so Moses is prohibited from entering the promised land. Why? Because he showed anger, right? And he smashes the rock because he's, he's, he's frustrated. He's so angry at the people. And so he shows himself to be an imperfect savior. And so God says, you may not be the one to lead the people into the promised land because you're flawed. And so everyone is flawed. So the whole story of the Old Testament until the New Testament is that every single leader fails. There is not a single leader. And Moses is the greatest of all mm-hmm. leaders, there is nobody greater, right? Even in, uh, in Deuteronomy, Moses was the humblest man who ever lived, right? And so Moses is is the height of holiness, and yet he fails. David fails, right? Everyone fails. That's the that's the lesson. All right, let me um, so let me go to verse sixteen. Let me read it since we're going to wrap up. Verse sixteen, last paragraph. God, uh, Moses says, speaking of speaking for God, "You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massa." You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, right? So remember, here's the conditional nature, right? Sounds like the covenant of works. You have to obey, keep the laws, keep the commandments of the Lord and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you and you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord and that it may go well with you. Notice the conditional language. And that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you. As the Lord has promised. And so, the land is conditional. If the people of God obey, they get to stay in the land. If they disobey, they'll be exiled. But, this is very important, if they disobey, they do not imperil their salvation. Because their salvation is premised on grace. It's a promise. God says, I will surely save you. I will send you a substitute. What is at stake is the land. And then some of you might ask, well, what about the, the Davidic covenant? The Davidic covenant, right, the covenant given to David, is pretty much the same thing as the Mosaic covenant, except instead of a whole nation, it goes down to a single representative. If David keeps the if David keeps the law, they stay in the land. If David or whoever the king is breaks the law, they leave. Who is that one representative ultimately speaking about? It's Jesus, right? Jesus, the one representative, the federal head. Whatever he does applies to us. So that was like completely disorganized. I apologize for that. Any questions? And now you know the first five books are Bible.
1: <laughs> Can you say the last thing again where again it sounds contradicting because again, canyon is representing heaven. Yes. And that's supposed to be unconditional. Um but then it yet is conditional, the land is conditional.
0: If you're confused, you understand. Okay? Because because it is incredibly complex. Because even in our text, notice. Moses emphasizes again, you did not do it. Right? Like, for example, when they conquered, um, 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 uh, what am I thinking of? What's, not, I wasn't the first city. What's the first city? Um, Jericho. Yes. Jericho. How did they conquer Jericho? Did they say, forward, ah, kill, slash, kick? Right? <laughs> how, how did they kill, how did they conquer Jericho? Who, who remembers the story? Yes. They, uh, walked on the city and they. Yes, brilliant military strategy, right? They march around the city and they blow trumpets. And then what happens? God destroys the city for them, right? So even the conquest of Canaan, the promised land, is by grace. God leads, God wins the battle for them. It's not them. Even when, for example, David fights Goliath. Who's who who's doing it? David's a little boy. So He's got a little sing shot, right? So it's God all along. But to keep the land, to stay on the land, it's a pick, it's, it's sort of like, A a repeat of the covenant of works. Not ultimately, it's not about salvation, but it's a re-dramatization of what's happening in Eden. So that as they lose the land, they're supposed to say, "Which direction are we heading? We're heading east." This seems very familiar. We need a savior. We need the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. All right. So let me pray for us. Thank you for your attentiveness, Heavenly Father. Um. We stand in wonder and awe before your word. And I pray that we would remember, that we would know, stand still, and, and know that you are Lord, that you have sent us a Savior, Jesus Christ. And I pray that, that we would believe, unlike the Israelites, unlike um, the, the wilderness wanderings. And I pray that this very brief survey of the first five books would be a tantalizing um, appetizer for us to really read the scriptures on our own to make a lifetime habit of study. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 All right, thank you, everyone.